Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the official Warlord Games podcast. My name is Brad, a.k.a. Old Man Warren, and joining me today is the author of one of uh, the most anticipated books from Warlord Games this year, uh, one of the most cinematic, iconic battles uh, in World War II, full stop. And, uh, of course, I am talking about a gentleman who has written several articles for Warlord in the past, but has stepped into the big light, so to speak, or onto the big stage uh, by writing his first ever bolt-action campaign book, and it is a doozy. Of course, I'm talking about Alexander Smith, and I am talking about Stalingrad. Alexander, welcome to the Warlord Game cast, man. How you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me, and hello, Wargamers. There you go. There you go. Well, mate, uh, as a history teacher, you have got to love uh, digging into uh, such an iconic part of World War II. Oh, I mean, it, it, it was right up my alley. And, and my students know they already get more uh, World War II knowledge than they could ever hope to uh, mm-hmm. retain already. And so it was nice to have an outlet for all the, the little details that never make it into the history books. Uh, at least the the public school history books, but that mm-hmm. um, you know people who play war games like you and I, we we thrive on the the little tidbits and the little details, really digging down, and and putting in some some stuff that I think people who already uh, are familiar with Stalingrad might find interesting or something that didn't know. I mm. I uh, I went to the the newest and greatest sources, including um, some authors who. Um, have resources from uh, that have only been available since the end of the Cold War and have shed some new light on, on this battle that has been studied thoroughly but is still um, one of the, the kind of premier uh, topics in, in uh, history. Now, I, I dug down into Stalingrad history uh, for a podcast episode a couple years ago um, but all the stuff I looked at was fairly dated. World War II is one of those things where sometimes you think because it happened so long ago, um, all the history that's written about it, you can go to you don't necessarily need the newest, hottest sources. But you're talking about getting in with um, new information that's only become, quote unquote, more recently uh, available. What kind of things are you mentioning there? Because to be a little more specific, because that sounds really cool. Sure. Well, um, you know, the, the history of World War II is interesting because uh, you know, they, the saying goes, history is written by the victors, mm. but that's not always the case. And a lot of the uh, accounts that we got about the war came from the biographies and memoirs of German officers. Um, and a lot of the Soviet sources were hidden away behind the Iron Curtain. Mm. And so we did not necessarily have access to the full story up until, you know, the last 20, 30 years. And I was in the same boat as you were when I was learning about Stalingrad as a, as a kid. Um, you know, I, I was always at the library, you know, checking out every single book they had. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most of the books about the this Eastern Front were from the 1970s. And William Craig's Enemy at the Gates was mm-hmm. considered kind of a standard as long as along with a few others. Um, and a lot of those sources were used um, German, you know, the German side and what they had of the Russian side. Mm-hmm. And um, since then, there's been some new some new data. And the, the kind of gold standard, in my opinion, is a, a fellow by the name of David Glantz. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came out with this these tomes there. I call them tomes because they're heavy enough to uh, to kill a man with <laughs> They're uh, yeah. They're about 30 pounds. 
uh, I'm exaggerating, but they're Oof. they're thick. There's six, eight hundred pages, and there's four of them to complete just the Battle of Stalingrad. And he goes through every conceivable detail and, and all the documents. And they've also translated the day-by-day um, transcripts of both the, the Soviet Army and the, the German Army at uh, Stalingrad. And, and there are now day-by-day accounts of what each army wa- was up to, mm-hmm. fully translated into English for, in some cases, the first time. Because uh, there's not as many Russian translators as there are German translators, mm-hmm. uh, at least you know for English speakers. And so now those are available as well. So it's really great if you're interested in this topic now. There are all these resources that, that weren't really available to the layman that now are. And so if you're the kind of person who wants to read what happened uh, you know, in the 57th day of the Stalingrad battle, yeah. you can find that out now. That's available. So this was great for me when I was doing the research because um, I, I was interested in providing a fair and balanced look at what really happened mm. and providing that for war gamers. And there is a lot of propaganda surrounding this battle. You know, the Romanians and the Germans blame each other for their loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Germans more so blaming the Romanians. Uh, the Soviets, meanwhile, were interested in playing up the victory as much as possible to the point of exaggerating a lot of details, mm-hmm. um, either downplaying how many men they had inside the city or, or, um, exaggerating the feats of certain individuals mm-hmm. uh, for propaganda efforts. So there's a the, cutting through that propaganda and finding what the truth is is not always uh, simple. And to kind of to to point to something that I think is in the consciousness of a lot of us is the uh, the iconic scene from Enemy at the Gates, the mm-hmm. uh, two men one rifle uh, scene. Um, this is something that has been recently kind of addressed by a lot of historians. In that th- that unit in question was the 13th Guards, mm-hmm. uh, Soviet Union, uh, made up of airborne trained troops, one of the finest fighting forces in the Soviet Army, and they certainly did not go into battle uh, with half their men unarmed. Right. Um, this all stemmed from a misunderstanding of a report that uh, the commander issued saying, we haven't received our full allotment of weapons before the battle. Uh, but when you look at the interviews of all the, the uh, soldiers who fought in the battle, they all, none of them... Uh, ever claim having to have been sent into battle unarmed. It was just a, a, a looking through the lens of history, it's easy to come to that conclusion. But we, with more research and with these interviews now available to us, we're able to see that, that um, that's not exactly how things played out. Wow. I mean, just hearing you talk about that, you are clearly the man for the job uh, for writing this book. And just by talking about those four books, digging into the day-by-day of Stalingrad, I mean, you can see in a lot of the bolt-action campaign books, the way they're laid out is that there are the missions in them that sort of give you either zoomed in or more pulled out um, opportunities to play the battles that, you know, were part of those campaigns. Um, For this book, we are talking, uh, what, 22 missions? Uh, that you can play out, 22 scenarios that you can play out um, that, you know, l- take into account a huge part of the battle for Stalingrad. And I'm, I mean, you would have y- used all of those resources in creating these because, yeah, as you say, you give a very detailed description before each mission to sort of set the stage before you start playing. Yeah, and, and w- I tried to include as much as possible for the the whole campaign, which is a long campaign. It's a six-month battle mm. over a relatively small area, you know, the right. city itself and its outskirts. Um, the the kind of 
um, blessing that I had was that um, General Paulus, who was the um, attacker, the uh, German general in charge of the Sixth Army, was a very meticulous man. And so he tended to attack one place at a time or in one, one theater at a time, which made it really easy for um, me to lay out the book in a way that was comprehensible because mm-hmm. it could be overwhelming if, you know, say three things are happening at once and trying to get those timelines straight. But because he tended to uh, only engage in a single offensive at a time, um, he was able, I was able to lay out the book in a way that um, it's easy to keep track of what's happening. And luckily we had a lot of resources at our disposal uh, through Osprey and through Warlord Games for mm-hmm. maps, which I'm always a huge fan of including. I like to see where things are um, on a map. In fact, I have a big old map of Stalingrad here on my wall that I would reference when I was writing the book. So, um, yeah, through using that, we're able to, to lay things out in a way that's understandable. And we go from outside the city to the outskirts to the very north of the city, all the way to the very south of the city and everywhere in between. Mm-hmm. And I, I do my best to lay out the geography of the city because it's not all the kind of heavily built up downtown uh, large apartment blocks that a lot of us are probably picturing in our minds. That right. is. Mm-hmm. section of the city, but there's also the the suburbs that would look pretty similar to any suburb you'd visit in a city today. You know, uh, rows of identical houses laid out geometrically and uh, little picket fences and uh, yards and trees. And those are all surrounding the city of Songground. There's tons of fighting that happened there. There's, of course, the factory complexes, the three mm-hmm. large factories in the north of the city. And something that doesn't get a lot of attention is the giant hill, Mamiyev, Kurgan in the middle of the city, which overlooked the entire town and the river line that saw some of the uh, most uh, intense fighting of the battle was for that hill. From the very beginning of the battle to the very end, there was Soviet and German troops fighting a World War One style attrition battle on top of this hill um, for control of it, because whoever controlled the peak essentially could use it to uh, observe the entire city and send down artillery strikes. So I've done what I can to lay out the geography, give players options to fight wherever they want in the city. If you want to have uh, a battle in trenches, you can. If you want to have a battle in a giant factory, that's in there. If you want to fight in the suburbs, you got that rolling step, that's in there. And anything nice. you can imagine, including many of the iconic buildings that some of us probably picture in our brains mm-hmm. when we hear Stalingrad. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it if... I want to dig into a lot of what you just said, but it's often, and I'm going to sort of jump forward and then pull back um, to get back to the scenarios, but it's often easy when we open the campaign books to flip immediately to the new units page uh, or to the new theater selectors to just figure out what are some new forces that we can put down on the tabletop. I mean, uh, Bolt Action's a game that has been around for many, many years at this point. And because um, when second edition came around and we didn't change the point values, the armies of books didn't change. And so as Bolt Action players, um, a lot of us have been around for a while. We immediately look for the new that we can add to our armies. But in doing so, I think that does uh, a book like this. I mean, A, there are some great units in this book, and we're going to talk about those in a minute. But I think that does a little bit of a disservice to the fact that you put such meticulous uh, effort into linking missions or scenarios uh, to specific units, to uh, specific selectors. I mean, a lot of the campaigns do this as well, but I think in this book in particular, 
uh, th- there's such a, a wonderful uh, correlation between all of the, the units, the scenarios, and the selectors that really give you the flavor for the battle. Um, do you want to talk maybe a little bit about some of, I, I, I put giant air quotes around this, your favorite um, or possibly least favorite um, scenarios to write for this? Um, and then maybe you can start linking how the units and the theater selectors link to those, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, sounds great. So um, my my kind of design philosophy when I started this is I saw a couple of ways that this could be a disappointing book in some ways, mm. uh, certain pitfalls that I wanted to really avoid. And the first was um, that I did not want it to make uh, it every scenario and every list seem too similar. Like you're just more and more the same, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it was it, that could have been easy in a giant urban setting to have oh, another urban battle between essentially the same army lists. Mm-hmm. Um, so I looked as hard as I could to find what made, say, a battle in the south of Stalingrad unique from a battle in the north of Stalingrad, and what made a battle in August 1942 different than a battle in January 1943. Right. And what I found was this incredible variety of different types of soldiers, different units, different strategies, and different ways of fighting that evolved over the course of the battle. I mean, they call Stalingrad the Academy of Street Fighting for a reason. And this is because this is where these armies learned the techniques that they would use for the rest of the war when it came to urban combat. Mm. In fact, the U.S. Army to to this day still studies Stalingrad. You can find these great videos that they've produced where they have created an entire 3D replica of the city and all the units, and they can run any day in any scenario to watch the, how it turns out and train their officers. Okay, see what happened here? He sent his uh, or his tanks too far forward without infantry support, and uh, they got blown up. So this is still used today to train people how to fight. And so and, and especially the Soviet Army, the Red Army, they really uh, took a lot of lessons away from this battle. The Germans were a little less flexible mm-hmm. in their approach because they had won so many victories using a certain technique mm-hmm. that no longer was effective here in, in the urban confines. It was hard to break out of that kind of mind, that mindset. The Soviets were on the ropes. They really had to get creative, and they did. And they had Chukov in command of the 62nd Army, and he was a great uh, innovator. So as I was going through, I was looking for what are they doing differently. And so there's a lot of changes from the beginning to the end of the book. At the beginning of the book, you have a Soviet army, a Red Army, that is essentially the same as these early war Soviet armies. Bulky, Mm -hmm. a lot of inexperienced riflemen uh, getting cut down by the thousands, uh, not particularly used well. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they have tank support, they have a lot of tanks, but a lot of... mm, let's say mediocre tanks with a lot of light tanks, T-60s, T-70s, mm-hmm. not a lot of T-34s necessarily yet. They may have some, but not necessarily veteran crews. And right. so you have a very prototypical early war Soviet army that starts this campaign. Now, the the German army is your typical blitzkrieg early uh, Eastern Front army, and they're fighting that way. And in fact, they will have um, the most uh, air support they will ever have in this conflict during this campaign. They, the Luftwaffe will send up to a thousand sorties a day in certain at parts of the battle. So that's reflected in these early theater selectors where the mm-hmm. Germans have 
these these excellent air support. But um, you know that is goes into the design philosophy that I I kind of looked for, which is how to make everything unique and not feel all the same. And I really leaned into the the asymmetrical uh, aspect of this battle, where the Germans tended to have an overwhelming uh, tank and uh, air support uh, advantage over the, the Soviets, but the Soviets were more flexible and they gradually built up this enormous artillery force across the river, which gave them, uh, you know, uh, the the firepower to, to really uh, hold their own. So, you know, early war, it's very similar to what you would expect from, mm -hmm. or the early into the campaign is what you'd expect. And the early battles in the scenarios are essentially rear guard actions from the Soviets as they fight their way step by step backwards toward the city. And then we arrive at the city itself and that's where things start to change. One of my favorite selectors is for the, um, is for the Soviets and that is where they are defending the, the city from the very first German incursion. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, let me pull up the name of the selector here because my brain can't remember it. Um, is it not a go. step back or no land no, beyond it's, the Volga? It's uh, the tractor factory. Selector. Oh, yes. And this was the the defenders of Stalingrad. So the, the Soviets had set up outside the city. The Germans mm -hmm. did their classic blitzkrieg around the defenders, punched through the sides and off behind them. And so the city itself was defended essentially by whatever they could scrape together. So you had some NKVD squads. Mm -hmm. But mostly you had workers who are just handed a rifle and maybe a bandana, a red bandana, mm -hmm. and pressed into service. And thousands of these workers went off to try and defend the city long enough for, uh, you know, a, the Red Army troops to to pull back to the city to defend it properly. So you have an army list that's basically this impromptu makeshift collection of Soviet um, units, but. It, it was a, it actually was able to hold off a German um, you know combined arms force. So you have a lot of militia units. Mm -hmm. you have um, you have the um, political units. You, you have some naval squads that have shown up. Mm -hmm. you have um, you have uh, anti-aircraft guns that have been converted into an anti-tank role mm -hmm. and the Soviet unit gets the Soviet player gets a couple of those. And then you have these T-34s, which I've dubbed the Tractor Factory T-34s, mm -hmm. that are in a very unique um, unit in this battle. You're really not going to see them anywhere else, which is the Tractor Factory at Stalingrad was the primary location where the T-34 was being produced at this time. Mm -hmm. And so in their dire need, they just pulled the tanks right off the factory line sent them right out the door, sometimes not even painted, sometimes with no optics installed, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times crewed by the people who had just built the tank. So not professional trained tank drivers, but just, um, you know, Rosie the Riveter, literally just hopping in a tank and heading off to battle. Yeah. And so, you know, you, they obviously suffered tremendous casualties against these veteran German tank crews, but they were literally producing more, like if you imagine like an, the old Command and Conquer games where the, the tank units are literally mm -hmm. being created, the building, and they're rolling onto the battlefield. It's almost like that. So the Germans are literally fighting them as they emerge from the factories. And, yeah. you know, that there's a certain advantage to fighting on your home turf, and that's, that's what the Soviets have there. And they were able to hold them off long enough to get, you know, the reinforcements in to um, 
to defend. And so this Tractor Factory 30, T-34 is a cheap option for mm -hmm. a tank that the Soviet player can field. It's much cheaper than a regular T-34. Mm -hmm. It's, of course, inexperienced, mm -hmm. but it has drawbacks. And you can choose which of the, the three potential drawbacks you want to, um, you want to pick from. Mm -hmm. You can choose to, to field the tank with no optics, which greatly reduces its range. Mm-hmm. You can... Uh, option to uh, have a tank that's been damaged and then repaired at the factory, which makes it weaker. It's not fully back to speed, so it can suffer damage a little easier. Mm -hmm. Or you can crew it with a factory uh, with factory workers, and then they, they sometimes have trouble performing simple battlefield maneuvers, and yeah. so you might end up with your tank uh, stuck somewhere that you don't want it. So yeah. I, I've tried to, to give Soviet players a way to field a couple cheap tanks Throw a couple of these onto the field, mm -hmm. and and maybe lose a few. But uh, you know, numbers has a uh, or what is it? Quality quantity has a quality of its own. That's right, as, as uh, Stalin would say. So um, that is the the early days of Stalingrad. You have this desperate defense of using whatever you can find, and so that is reflected in their selectors, and it's reflected in the scenarios as well. And um, so then, I don't know if you want to keep going or if you yeah, want to please. read. Okay. So as we move on from there, we get into the main meat of the, the conflict in Stalingrad. Mm -hmm. The German troops moving into the city. And um, Paulus elected to go for the south of the city first, the mm -hmm. downtown area. And we have a couple iconic battles that happen there uh, at, the, um, at the grain elevator. This enormous structure, this enormous uh, concrete uh, monolith that stores thousands and thousands of tons of grain and is essentially impervious to almost anything that the Germans are able to throw at it. And it's crewed by a handful of uh, Soviet uh, naval uh, troops and they're able to hold off the Germans for a long time. So we have a couple scenarios in the south of Stalingrad that these, these real desperate defense um, uh, kind of actions. Mm -hmm. And we also have a selector for the Germans that's, that's a little bit different than what we have seen before. And that is um, the um, the armored Kampgruffen. Yep. We said I pronounced that right. My German is not great. We are not going to ever criticize for pronunciation on the show, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah, Kampgruffen. All right, or Kampgroup. So um, essentially, the Germans were flexible in a way of how they created their 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 operational groups in that. Um, they wouldn't necessarily say, well, okay, this is a company of tanks. We need to field it as a company of tanks. They would take, okay, we need some of these pioneers, a couple infantry platoons, a couple tanks here, and we'll form it all into an operational group. And they'd name it after the officer in charge. Mm -hmm. And that would, they would form that into to a, a unit and give it an objective. Okay. So this unit, you're, you got some, some Panzer threes, you got some Panzer grenadiers, you got some pioneers, go take this block or whatever. Mm -hmm. So this is reflected in a, a new theater selector that the Germans have. And these are what they would send into the city as their kind of initial probes. And it's a mixed group of tank. It's almost like a mix between a tank platoon and an infantry platoon. Which is what so I was going to say. Your yep. mandatory selectors, the things you need to take, you have to have a lieutenant and you have to have one infantry squad, Panzer Grenadiers, and one tank. And then from there, you can choose to fill out the rest of your um, platoon with more infantry, more tanks, uh, some artillery, light. So it's a very uh, flexible. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very flexible list. 
If and if I if I may jump in there for a second, because sure. I do know that a lot of people will message the show if if we don't give a, a couple more details about that one, um, given how popular Germans are. So this is as um, as Alexander just said, it is a mix between an armored platoon and a regular infantry platoon, but it is still limited on how many armored vehicles you can take. So. As you say, you have a lieutenant, one infantry squad, and one vehicle that you take as the mandatory units. But then you can take up to four additional infantry squads. So in that way, it's a bit like a regular reinforced platoon. You don't get the six infantry squads that you would normally get in um, a theater selector list. It is the five maximum infantry squads, base squads. Of course, you have the small team weapons like MMGs, mortars, flamethrowers, sniper team, anti-tank rifle, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You can take up to one artillery piece, but then you can have up to one armored car normally, and then the tank, uh, assault gun, self-propelled artillery or anti-air vehicle. So it's almost like a regular infantry platoon, but one of your prerequisite squads that would normally be in a theater selector list has been replaced by a tank. But every um, every Panzer Grenadier squad in the army, which is one of the key integral parts of that army, must be mounted in a transport. So it's a very mobile list. It's like your your mechanized infantry plus some tanks, which is very cool. Right. Yeah. So so there is some downsides to it, of course, with this flexibility of of this, you know, having to be able to take two tanks and some a decent amount of infantry, Mm. which is that your infantry, at least one of your infantry squad, which is your mandatory Panzer Grenadier squad, has to be mounted. So that's, you know, between the tank that you is mandatory and the squad that is mandatory and the the uh, transport that's mandatory. That's a that's an expensive it's an expensive list. You're not going to be able to afford um, a ton of extras necessarily. So it's a, it's, it's a powerful, it's a powerful army, but it's, it's limited in certain ways by the expense, the point values of some of the units that, uh, are required. Absolutely. So, um, it's also not necessarily ideal for certain environments, Mm -hmm. especially as the Germans will find in the very heavily, uh, uh, built up areas of Southern Stalingrad. So, um, the German players can can choose this, and, and in fact, uh, it is one of the required uh, lists for certain scenarios, and is an option for other scenarios. So you, you the German player will need to decide whether or not a, a mobile force, a mechanized force, is is appropriate mm-hmm. for what you're trying to achieve. But you know, it's always great having a couple tanks or a half track around. So sometimes you might risk it, even though it's it can be kind of scary with uh, all that with all that cover because mm-hmm. the you're real close and um all it takes is uh all it takes is one guy with an anti-tank rifle to get close enough and uh, suddenly your expensive panzer three is on fire mm-hmm. so um that's that's something i i built in to reflect the, the tactics that the germans used as as the beginning at the beginning of the uh assault on stalingrad mm. and they would make some uh some adjustments but not as many adjustments as the soviets would as the battle uh, kind of raged on so the, the southern reaches of Stalingrad were attacked. We have the battle at the rail station, which is a favorite of mine, involving the 13th Guard, as previously mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a very elite airborne, uh, previously airborne troops reconverted to an infantry role, so very elite um, group, and they are fighting in southern Stalingrad. 
And then we move from there into the, the suburbs of the city, which were badly, badly damaged in the firebombing attacks by the Luftwaffe. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the German assault was, was predicated by a essentially carpet bombing campaign by the Luftwaffe that, that blew up much of the city uh, and cracked all the, the water pipes, basically making firefighting impossible. And in the suburbs, the buildings were made of wood. You know, downtown Stalingrad, you had stone and brick and concrete buildings. But in the suburbs, they were all wooden houses. And once those bombs exploded, set a bunch of things on fire, there's no way to put out the fires. Yeah. And so you had these infernos that just raged through entire sections of the city. And if you've ever seen pictures of Stalingrad, you'll notice that sometimes there'll be these solitary chimneys just kind of off by themselves. Well, those are those are houses that were wood that burned down, and the, only the chimney, the brick part, was able to survive the fire. So you have what used to be a very dense suburb, now pocketed by sections that have been burned to the ground, and there's a lot of fighting that goes over this. This is good tank country for the Germans. Mm-hmm. It's also where the Soviets will deploy most of their tanks, so we have some some battles there that can be um, like kind of combined arms battles, and the Germans will slowly adapt to the realities of the city. And we reflect that with some of their later uh, selectors mm-hmm. that allow them to field more um, more uh, assault guns. Yeah, uh, The Stugs uh, make an appearance, and uh, the Soviet player can elect to take one tank or two Stugs. Yeah. And this is to kind of reflect the, the combined arm approach that they used with these assault guns, where they were, they were more closely tied to the infantry than the Panzers necessarily were, and the uh, especially the short range or the the howitzers that were on a lot of these assault guns were really useful to blast defenders out of buildings, and so they were very highly valued by the Germans. They would deploy them right along with their infantry, so that gives a, a kind of option for the German player. If if you have, I always say you can it, taking the Stug may not be the the optimal choice, but it's always the best choice if you mm-hmm. want to impress. Your, your opponent and show them that you're uh, you're a great person. I always field one every time I get a chance, and so putting two on the on the board was is something that I think would be fun for some people. Definitely. So that's an option. And then uh, the the Soviets uh, realized quickly that they could not match German firepower with the with their plane and tank support, and so they moved more and more towards small unit tactics. Something, things that seem especially modern today, things that our our modern forces would would uh, seem to have adopted, or mm-hmm. that they were almost ahead of their time in certain ways. When instead of fielding, sending an entire platoon, say, to take a building, they take a handful of picked guys and just arm them to the teeth. Which brings us to probably what's going to be. I'm just going to project my mind into the future here, mm-hmm. and and. Expect one of the most controversial and probably popular units yep. from this book, the Soviet Storm Group. Yes. So let's talk about that a little bit. So the Storm Group was an evolution of Soviet tactics, which had traditionally called for a very rigid plan of attack involving high level officers planning a step by step plan for their subordinates. So at 1202, you were to be here and then you were to attack this way with this many men. In the chaos of Stalingrad, this was not an effective means of controlling the battle. And what they quickly realized is that 10 men can do the work of 100 men much easier if they are able to do it in a way that's conducive to the environment on the ground. Which is to say that stealth, the right equipment and the right men were what was called for oftentimes to break what were called these strong points. 
heavily defended buildings that were mounted with machine guns and defenders. So instead of rushing at it with a large group of men in, in, in kind of broad daylight, rather, um, they, they would typically wait till nighttime, take six to 10 men and arm them all with submachine guns, as many grenades as they could carry, some melee weapons, and they would let the members of the group choose who, uh, uh, basically a battle buddy. So like, who is the guy you trust to watch your back in a hand-to-hand -hand combat mm -hmm. scenario? And so you would have interesting kind of um, combos where a, a common soldier would be fighting alongside a, a lieutenant or a captain in one of these storm groups. And, and the kind of rigid military rank system would kind of break down in these, these kind of groups, um, almost like commando raids. Mm. And so they would send these guys in, and uh, typically at night, they would, their, their strategy would be to close as close as possible to the enemy position through stealth, and then once in position, launch a hail of grenades through the windows or any opening into the building, and then essentially try to time it out so they were bursting in through the building just after the grenades had detonated mm. so that the stunned German defenders would have no time to stop them. And then from there on, it's clearing the building room by room with submachine guns, grenades, and then when your gun is empty, you pull out the uh, sharpened spade or your bayonet or your, mm -hmm. your knife, and you finish them off from there. And it was extremely effective for the Germ or for the Soviets, rather. And usually you would have a couple groups of, of reinforcements right behind the first group to kind of like secure the building, set up machine guns, usually an artillery spotter and some some engineers to kind of reinforce the building and, and set up some heavy equipment. And they were able to use their their lack of anything of any heavy uh, support and turn that to an advantage by being mobile and by being flexible. And so in the um, in the supplement that I that uh, that I've written here in the Stalingrad supplement, the storm group is represented kind of uniquely. They're expensive. They're a yes. veteran unit is is it's expensive for a handful of guys, but they're veterans or regulars depending on on how you wanna to uh, pay for it. Mm -hmm. But they have a new special rule: armed to the teeth, and this allows them to always attack first in close combat, even if the defender is in cover. Right. And this is to reflect the, their ability to stun the enemy with this hail of grenades, which was kind of their signature move. And so these guys are extremely deadly in, in play testing they they pretty much win or die they they get mm -hmm. in there and they it's a wipe or they they get killed on the way in uh, yep. if they're caught in the open so they're very vulnerable there's these these very small squads but if they're able to get into close combat then you've you're going to do some damage so they're kind of an all or nothing unit mm -hmm. um you can really, I've had a few instances where I've taken them and regretted it when they died to a, a mortar barrage or mm -hmm. a machine gun caught them in the open. But I've also had instances where they got into an enemy building and just rained havoc. And so That's right. this is to reflect the kind of, like I said, the asymmetrical aspect of this battle where the Germans, they got the tanks, they got the airstrikes, but the, the Soviets, they have innovation in ways that are, that give them certain advantages. So, yeah. um, you know, one of the rules that is built into a lot of these lists is that the Soviets are not allowed to bring a lot of heavy equipment in their list, like heavy, right. uh, heavy artillery pieces and a lot of, um, a lot of uh, transports or other things because they could not get these into the city. They had to cross a river, and all the transport capability was, was tied up just ferrying men and supplies. So all the artillery is, is off-map, so to speak. 
which means that you have artillery support in that you, if you take an artillery observer, Soviet players get two uh, artillery bombardments instead of the normal one, right. which if your artillery uh, observer survives long enough is extremely powerful, especially with the, the national rules that the Soviets have. That's right. But it's also risky because if that guy takes a sniper bullet, uh, you've lost a lot of points there. So, um, but hold on, before Soviets... before people get start rubbing their hands together with glee, thinking, "Oh, I can run my usual Soviet list with the British national rule of double artillery." Um, oh, sorry, the American rule of uh, double air, for example, except double arty. Um, remember that uh, Alexander said at the beginning of that. The lists that allow that also very heavily limit what vehicles you can take at all. Uh, in some cases, none. So um, you are giving something up for that ability, which is very cool. I mean, it's very themey and allows you to change your list in a really cool and interesting way. Yeah. So in general, the the idea was if if a gr if a list has a downside in some way, it should have. It should reflect the way that the army worked around their downside. So the Soviets Absolutely. did not have a lot of vehicles or heavy equipment in the city, and they worked around this by having a mass of artillery across the river they could call in. Mm. And so that's reflected in the lists. Um, and so this, it, it again, goes back to the asymmetrical idea of the battle. And, you know, it tried to, I tried to make everything a little unique in this way that, that fighting a battle at the beginning and the end are going to feel differently or even in different parts of the city are going to feel different to kind of break up that, uh, you know, like this is our hundredth battle over some generic buildings, uh, with the same lists kind of idea that could kind of percolate through. I felt if I, if things were too much the same and to be honest, you know, in history, in reality, the, the, the tactics evolved enormously from the beginning to the end. The, the armies were almost unrecognizable from their former selves by the time it was all over. So that's all been taken into account when this has been designed. Um, and then, of course, as we get into the final stages of the battle, the Soviets flip the, uh, flip the table or flip the script, and suddenly they're on the attack. Mm -hmm. And we, that's when we get to uh, bring in everyone's favorite uh, bolt-action army, the Romanians, make an appearance. Yes! So... Um, I was interested in trying to get as many of the minor nations as possible into the book. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the Italians and the Hungarians were just too far north to really include while staying true to all the important Stalingrad uh, events that happened. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, it's, the Romanians are the only Axis minor that makes an appearance, but they they feature prominently in several scenarios. They have two new theater lists, a, uh, a tank platoon for the first time mm -hmm. so if you are a romanian tank player if you have those lovely uh panzer 35 t's that are so cute and you want to field a couple of those mm -hmm. now you have the opportunity um and there's also a romanian uh cavalry list and the romanian cavalry uh were one of their greatest strengths and they fought really well during the the battle and so um i've always wanted to build a cavalry force and maybe i will now um yeah it's it's a it's a tricky force to play, but um, there's a lot of interesting things you can do with it. And the Romanians had an interesting design of their forces in that their um, their cavalry units also contained a lot of armored cars. These so you had a kind of mixed armored car and men on horseback would then dismount to fight. And it's it, it, I think it could be a really unique force for someone to out there to to build. And I'd love to see what people come up with. 
totally. Uh, in terms of these Romanian uh, army lists. And then you get the surrounding of the, the German army and then the subsequent try uh, attempt to break through to save the trapped uh, Ston the trapped German Sixth Army. So you have uh, so one of the largest tank battles of the war takes place uh, in this attempt to break through. So if you're a fan of, of tank platoon battles, there is a excellent one in this uh, scenario. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the scenarios where um, each player can take quite a large number of tanks. It's it's a large battle, and I've reflected that in the way the scenario has been built. So if you're if you've ever wanted to to field five or six tanks at once, mm -hmm. uh, you're gonna be really happy with with some of these scenarios. Awesome, nice. Well, let's. I mean, I think you've done a really good job of linking the scenarios to the theater selectors to the units. Um, but another layer to this book that sort of throws on top of that. Now, you did talk earlier about how Stalingrad didn't just take place in urban combat, although when we think of Stalingrad, that's often what we think of is the city fight. Um, now, you did say that there's a wide variety of places to fight and um, different uh, areas that have very different rules, but one of the things that's in this book, because we do think of Stalingrad as that city fight, is a set of very specific city fight rules. Um, do you want to talk about some of those rules and how they came into being and how playtesting for them went and what that means for us when we want to play the in-your-face, claustrophobic confines of a, of a battle in an urban environment? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, Stalingrad is, is unique in a lot of ways. And so when I was writing the rules for how to, how to play out urban combat, I, I wanted to... I wanted them to not be a one-size-fits-all kind of rule set, and mm. so I did make some modifications to some of the existing bolt-action urban combat rules and mm -hmm. kind of gave uh, people an alternative option because of the unique nature of Stalingrad, which was this apocalyptic kind of fighting um, that, that really saw both sides really bring a fanaticism that wasn't present in a lot of other, um, in a lot of other locations. Mm -hmm. So... There's a lot of unique uh, special rules that I've I've kind of contributed to this uh, to this uh, campaign that that I think could also be used elsewhere, but they're very very Stalingrad esque. Mm. So one of them is that um, there's now a way to have a what I call a constant bombardment within uh, a, a battle. So in bolt action, usually at the beginning of a scenario, if the one side is defending and one side is attacking. Mm -hmm. um, Usually the attacker will get a, a preparatory bombardment to kind of kick things off, which right. pins down some of the enemies, maybe blows up something. So this, of course, would happen in Stalingrad all the time. But in some areas of the city, it was more like World War One Verdun-style bombardments where the artillery never really stopped. It just it was continuous night night and day, especially in the center of the city at the giant hill, Mamiev Kurgan. Um, you know, they they the snow could not settle on the hill for the amount of artillery that was falling. It would just get blasted away. And the grass would not grow after the battle because of how many shell fragments and, and how much chemicals seeped in from all these exploded bombs. So in places like this, you can utilize this con constant bombardment rule, which is essentially that instead, in lieu of a one-shot bombardment at the beginning of the battle, mm -hmm. Uh, the player who uh, has the rule adds a special dice to the uh, order dice bag. And it can be a regular dice you've marked in some way or a different colored dice. Mm -hmm. And whenever that dice is drawn, you essentially can launch a a bombardment on a single unit that is visible to either a artillery spotter or an artillery observer that you own. And it only hits that unit. 
but it's every turn, which means that these bombardments are landing throughout the battle. And so your opponent, and in some battles, both sides get this rule, needs to be very cognizant of where they place their units because who can see them? And if they're out in the open and their artillery bombardment comes down on them before they're able to get to cover, they're going to be in bad shape. Yeah. So um, this is especially utilized in some of the larger battles that I've um, built into the scenarios. Mm -hmm. And speaking of larger battles, I've also built in rules for longer scenarios. So this standard bolt action game is six or seven turns. Mm -hmm. In some of my scenarios, I, I have attempted to recreate these day-long battles by having a nine-turn scenario mm -hmm. that has a fifth turn, essentially like intermission. So to explain, you play four regular turns of bolt action, and the fifth turn, night falls, and you have night fighting rules for a single turn. And during that turn, any reinforcements that come on can essentially be placed um, anywhere within a certain range of your HQ units, essentially bringing up the reinforcements to the front line. Oh, certain wow. units can dig in to build like a trench or get some defenses. And then the next turn, the, the, night, uh, the night turns to day and the battle resumes, and then you have four more turns of battle. So it's, it's a very interesting dynamic where, mm. for instance, say the Germans are attacking and they're, they're losing tons of men, but they're making good ground. And then they dig in at the on the during nighttime, bring in the reinforcements, and the next day they suddenly have a second wind and are able to, uh, you know, renew the attack. Or the Soviets have brought in enough reinforcements that they're able to counterattack. So, the the slightly longer battle for those of us that have time for such a, a long endeavor, mm -hmm. it gives a lot of options in terms of strategically using your your reserves in a way that can really decisively win you the battle in the second half of the game. So um, that's been built in in a few scenarios. Um, not all of them. Of course, most of us, most games are, are standard length scenarios, but there's a few that I, I've felt were benefited from these kind of, um, mm -hmm. these kind of longer battles. There's also rules for fuel shortages and ammo shortages, mm -hmm. which are um, something that the Germans will have to face in the latter half of the campaign as they get surrounded and their supplies are cut off. There's, um, and then of course the sitting fighting rules in general have been slightly, uh, modified mm -hmm. for this, um, for this campaign. Um, I've introduced a rule called utter bedlam, which uses one of my favorite things about the bolt action system, which is the foobar, foobar. rules. Mm -hmm. Always fun whenever they come. Oh up. yeah. The, never, never ceases to be hilarious. Mm -hmm. Even for the person who loses the game because of it, it's, yeah. it's always just like a, a, it's never there's never any hard feelings about it because it's always like a good natured way for things to go awry, and of course in war no plan survives contact with the enemy. So Amen. in city fighting now, Fubar will if you're using this rule, which of course you can always opt not to if you if you are the kind of person who doesn't like this, but um, if you roll an 11 or a 12 instead of just a 12, now you're rolling on the Fubar chart, and the Fubar chart is slightly different uh, than the regular Fubar chart. So there's, of course, the friendly fire, everyone's favorite FUBAR option, mm -hmm. uh, where you shoot at a, 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 uh, one of your own units on accident, or the panic where you run away. But the new option on the FUBAR chart is that uh, your men will simply uh, find the closest hard cover they can and, and run to it and hunker down. So um, this is to reflect that when the troops sometimes would get separated from their commander during the battle, and the ordnance was flying and people were getting hurt, uh, Sometimes you would lose control of that unit. They would just hunker down somewhere and, and wait for the, the storm to, to uh, pass over. So it does uh, increase the number of FUBARs that are in the game, but mm -hmm. I felt that this was a good representation of, of how chaotic the battles could be and in a way that's not too frustrating for the player. Totally. And that 
gives them sometimes might actually be something you are not too unhappy with. So if your unit runs into cover, maybe, you know, maybe that's not such a bad thing, but it, maybe it's not exactly what you had in mind. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, there's rules for rubble, which are um, utilized from previous um, previous uh, supplements. Mm -hmm. The rules for buildings have been slightly modified in that um, in bolt action, buildings were largely largely designed to be essentially like single story, like single family homes, right? Like yeah. where there's one giant big room that every all the soldiers are in the same room. So if the building is destroyed then everything inside would be destroyed. But if you think of, say, a large apartment block and one section of it was destroyed, that might ne not necessarily affect soldiers in another section of the building. So we've, right. I've, I've clarified that if a building has multiple floors or multiple sections, that uh, a section being destroyed by artillery does not necessarily affect soldiers on another floor unless the entire building collapses. Same thing with flamethrowers. To clarify, these extra large buildings that are going to make an appearance in Stalingrad. Um, there's sewer movement rules. Mm -hmm. There are also rules for um, battlefield damage. So for me, when I have a heavy artillery piece and it fires this heavy shell at the enemy and it this 120-millimeter you know, shell hits or it misses and then it just simply disappears off the table, that can be sometimes frustrating because you, you just fire this explosive and you want to see what damage it does. Even if it doesn't hit the enemy, you feel like this there should be some aftermath of this explosion. So this is really kind of an aesthetic rule. Mm -hmm. it, the effects on gameplay are minimal, but if you're like me and you like adding little bits of debris to the battlefield as you go to kind of show the, the carnage that's erupted, this is a rule for you, which is when explosives go off, they leave a crater and a smoke, and a smoke uh, blossom behind. Mm -hmm. And so misses can sometimes go astray and hit something else. Uh, not to do damage, but if it, it might go and hit an empty building and destroy that. Uh, or it might just leave a big crater and a big wall of smoke for your enemy to uh, hide behind. So I, especially with Stalingrad being kind of the, the epitome of battlefield destruction, I felt it would be remiss for me not to include some ways for people to uh, detail the destru ongoing destruction uh, of their battlefield as uh, the, the fighting rages on. So it's not, it's not going to change the way you play the game, really, but if you're the kind of person who likes putting smoke markers and, and destroyed markers all over the battlefield, this will be pretty fun for you, I think. Yeah, man, that is awesome. So many, uh, just such, if, if you are the, the more traditional tournament type of player, I mean, not only do you get a lot out of this book with new units um, and with the new selectors, only, you know, that we've only barely scratched the surface of on this podcast, but if you are more the a narrative player who want to play out the scenarios in this book, you get so much more. Not only do you get everything that we talked about, but the special rules just add that other layer on top that just really does make this feel like almost a brand new game, even though you are still playing the same old bolt action that we know and love. It is it's it's a really exciting book, the the Stalingrad campaign book. And Man, I've got to take my hat off to you. It, it really is a fantastic addition to the pantheon of uh, bolt-action books that we've had over the years. Um, it, yeah, great stuff. Oh, thank you so much. But wait, there's more. Uh, for those of you who love the old commercial, you know, they always get that, you get all this and then more. And we have a campaign system that's built into this as well, um, which, of course, if you are looking to play uh, you know, Stalingrad out, you can't just play one battle. You, there's got to be a lot of linked games that come together, I should say, for this one big battle. 
Um, talk to us a little bit about the campaign, the campaign system that is part of this book. Um, and people should absolutely, you know, sometimes when things are at the back of the book, you go, no, 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 I'll stick to the other stuff. Regardless of what kind of player you are, you want to look at this campaign system because it's great stuff. Well, the idea I had, and I think all of us want to put our battles into a greater context. Mm. It's always fun to play a one-off, but it's what is what was accomplished in this battle. The Germans were victorious, okay? What does that mean? And I think a lot of us have tried over the years to to build a campaign around our games, whether it be just linking two or three battles together or some sort of very uh, complicated map and, and all sorts of rules. Mm. My goal was to give players a way to link their battles and put them in a context, but in a way that... Uh, was not overly restrictive and that kind of uh, addressed the the limitations of of wargaming as a campaign right so if you're like I am or, or my club is whenever you try to, to run some sort of ongoing campaign or tournament or whatever the biggest problem is getting players to show up and continue what we started last time mm. it's only a matter of time before someone can can't come to the normal session and then everything gets bogged down and mm -hmm. then before long, You've lost track of what was happening, and the whole thing falls apart. We've been there, yeah. So Stalingrad pre presents a very unique opportunity in that it's six months of fighting in the same place, which means that you can like realistically have an ongoing campaign that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Fighting like, you know, for instance, uh, you know, in a different part of the world where the battles move from place to place over the course of a week, doesn't having a map-based campaign would be difficult because of the distances involved. But because it's all in the same place, I, I very early on came up, came to the conclusion that I really wanted to build a campaign. It took me probably five or six iterations before I came to a system I was happy with. But basically, what I came to was this. All you need to run a Songrad campaign is the map and VP tracker, victory point tracker, that's in mm -hmm. included in this in the supplement, and yourself and one other player. If you have more, great, but that's all you need, two players and the stuff that's included. And what you do is you essentially pull dice out of the bag, order dice to determine who's going who's gonna to select the territory attack. And the Germans are trying to take all eight territories of Stalingrad before the Soviets amass enough victory points through battles to launch Operation Uranus. So the the goals are asymmetrical. The Soviets are trying to accrue victory points, and when they get to a certain amount, they win automatically. Meanwhile, the Germans are, are trying to take territory, so by winning enough games, they can become victorious. Now, the Soviet player may not win very many games. In fact, they don't actually need to win any games to be victorious if the, if the thing goes on long enough. But they every victory point they amass slowly heads towards that final goal. Um, and so I've built three variants depending on how many players you have. If you have only two players, you can do a, a very small tournament or sorry, campaign. Mm -hmm. If you have a large group with eight or more players, you can do it that way too. And the great thing is because it's turnless really, um, when people can ever, whenever people are available to play a game, they can. And if those people aren't available, but there's someone else available, you can play against them and it all works towards the campaign. So if someone drops out, it does not mean the campaign needs to end. If someone needs to switch sides because the teams are unbalanced, they can. It doesn't really matter. And so I've, I've tried to build a, around the common pitfalls of campaign, which is that how difficult it is to get the same groups of people together over and over again right. over what you would need a couple months or a couple weeks in order to finish one. So um, because the paperwork is minimal and because the players can be interchangeable, you have a very flexible system that allows the, the game to go on even if the players – 
uh, drop out or come in late or your chain sides or whatever may happen. Life is, you know, we're all, I think most of most players of bullet action are at that point in their life where they have a lot of commitments outside of war gaming. And sometimes it's difficult to find a time to play. And so I, I certainly know what that's like. And I've built the campaign around that. But I think for those of us that are interested in this kind of um, this kind of linked narrative, mm-hmm. it provides a lot of options and it utilizes all 22. Well, not all 22 scenarios, but most of the scenarios in the book. And you can play through those in a way that is has a greater context. So you can visit all the great Stalingrad uh, tourist destinations, such as <laughs> the Grain Elevator, mm-hmm. the enormous uh, concrete concrete monolith in southern Stalingrad, the rail station in downtown Stalingrad, the infamous Pavlov's house, which has its own scenario mm-hmm. um, that is a lot of fun and and very brutal uh, with with um, just close range firefights happening everywhere. And in fact. A lot of the um, a lot of the scenarios are built around very terrain heavy tables, but ne- not necessarily even a six by four foot table. Some of the scenarios use a four by foot table, but ask the player to please to try and put a lot of uh, block line of sight blocking terrain. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of mixes up the standard. I think if you've ever played a Stalingrad or sorry, a bolt action tournament, you kind of know the standard bolt action table, oh, yeah. which is six by four, four foot table with a couple house, one sing, like single family houses, mm-hmm. um, maybe a couple trees and some fences and a lot of open space. So there certainly are scenarios that have, are more open, especially some of the tank platoon battles. That's right. But there's a lot of battles that are really outside of the norm of, of bolt action kind of setup that I think will provide a really interesting uh, dynamic, a really interesting way to mix things up. So you're, you're packed in real close, but there's a lot of stuff in the way. And so that really affects the way you deploy, the way you move your forces around, and makes things real interesting. Uh, one thing I didn't talk about earlier, which I, I can't believe I forgot, was a, my favorite scenario is the sniper duel. Mm-hmm. So Stalingrad, famous for the sniper battles that happened in the, the Soviet snipers, Vasily Zaitsev. I created a, a, a scenario called the sniper duel, and in it, the Germans and the Soviet players are, are mandated to take at least one, if not two, snipers. And they face off against the enemy team and the enemy snipers. The goal is for your sniper to get as many kills as possible and for your forces to go collect the dog tags of the fallen troops your sniper has eliminated. Such a and good so mission. it's yeah. this really interesting cat and mouse game. Of course, taking out the enemy sniper is the ultimate prize. Um, of course, Vasily Zaitsev uh, is represented in the supplement mm-hmm. as well as a, uh, as a stand-in for the fictional Major Koenig, the... Uh, Opponent of uh, Vasily Saitsev in the Enemy at the Gates movement mm-hmm. movie. Ah, movie. Movie played by um, Ed Harris. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, in reality, there's there's not a lot of historical records that this character actually existed. Mm-hmm. Vasily Saitsev and his narrative claim he did. Of course, there's a lot of propaganda surrounding him. Oh yeah. But we figured if even if there wasn't an actual guy named Major Koenig, there was surely a German sniper who was an expert marksman, mm-hmm. and so there is a special character for the Germans as well. So uh, both the Germans and Soviets get special characters to represent these master snipers. They each have different rules that kind of reflect their own little uh, kind of ways of of, uh, their little field craft that they bring to the table. And speaking of snipers, there are two new Soviet sniper unit options in this book. Uh, One is um, is a sniper squad, which sounds really terrifying, but only actually contains two snipers and some, Mm -hmm. um, some spotters and backups. Sometimes the Soviet uh, command would send an entire unit of snipers 
to uh, for a mission. And so this is something that I think is going to be pretty dangerous for the opponents is a, a two snipers with some backup guys, mm -hmm. which means that taking out the sniper is a little harder than it used to be. And also a unit that represents the way that Soviet snipers were trained, which was this apprentice and master system, which is That's that right. a master sniper would take two novice snipers under his wing and kind of take them out onto the battlefield and show them the ropes. And so you have a unit containing one master sniper and two inexperienced snipers. And only one or the other can fire, and the player has to choose which of the two it is. And when one, when the master sniper is killed, the unit reverts to an experienced. When the, uh, if, the, uh, if the novice snipers are eliminated, then the master sniper goes on alone as a veteran. So it's a really interesting dynamic uh, to represent the, the really eff the, all the effort the Soviets put into these asymmetrical ways of fighting in the city, uh, using snipers, assault groups. Um, using what they had at their disposal, which was basically grit and ingenuity. Mm -hmm. Well, Alex, I'm sorry to say our time is at an end, um, but it has been an absolute pleasure listening to you talk about the Stalingrad book today. Um, you clearly know a lot about it, uh, and you're passionate about the subject, and that has come through and across over the the span of both this podcast and um, clearly from page to page when reading the Stalingrad book. It has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure, and I'm always happy to talk about Stalingrad at length, as my students are, are well aware. <laughs> so uh, I think that uh, I think the book's going to be great. It's full of great maps, pictures, units, and uh, I'm really happy to, to, to see how it all turned out, and I think you're going to enjoy it too. So uh, thank you, Brad, for having me on, and, and uh, those bolt action players out there, I, I hope you enjoy Stalingrad. Nice. Well, guys, uh, he, he, the man summed it up better than I could, so I'm going to stop there. But if you have uh, any feedback for the Warlord cast, um, I am commonly asked, how can we make suggestions for the future? Um, I am... Uh, I, though I run the Warlord podcast, I do do this as a freelancer for Warlord Games. I'm not actually a Warlord employee. Um, if you would like to send me messages directly about the content of this show or the direction that this show goes, you can find me. My name is Brad. Hi. Um, at Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. If you type that into Facebook, you can find the Cast Dice podcast page. Um, if you message that page, you will only get one person. That is me. And Cast Dice is the podcast network that runs this podcast. If you are listening to this somehow and you're wondering how, you know, if you can't happen to find how to subscribe to it um, through iTunes or whatever, and somehow you're able to listen to this, um, the best way is to go to the Cast Dice page. Uh, if you hit subscribe there, you will find all of the Cast Dice Podcast Network podcasts. That includes the official Warlord cast. Uh, so yeah, there you go. And for all the people who have reached out recently um, with all of the requests for uh, today's podcast, I hope I've included all of your questions in today. Um, thankfully, Alexander has uh, done a wonderful job of answering most of your questions before I ask them. So it was great. Um, but please keep asking guys. Uh, we love to hear your feedback and we look forward to, uh, sharing quite a few new goodies and games that, uh, Warlord will be putting out in the next couple of episodes. There are some doozy episodes coming your way, so I hope you stay tuned. It will be well worth it. On behalf of Warlord Games, my name is Brad and I would like to say thank you for listening and have a nice day.